Turn to Luke chapter 9. I encourage you to do what we've been doing for years as a family, is to take notes and then revisit that at some point during the week for 10, 15 minutes about what it, uh, application might look like for each of you. So Luke chapter 9. <clears throat> if we really think about it, answers to questions matter a lot. If you're a high school student and you're taking your ACT, the answers on that test matter a lot, don't they? College exams, no doubt they matter a lot. They, in my college career, they seem not to matter too much, <laughs> especially before I came to Christ. And then, uh, you know, Joelle just got her driver's license last week, and even those answers matter a lot. But, but there's no question in the world that matters more than asking the question, who is Jesus Christ? Asking and answering that question literally can determine one's eternal destination, eternal life or eternal condemnation. So this morning our text is really about questions and answering them correctly. The, the answer to the question of who is Jesus Christ will also determine, by the way, who are you really following? Dr. Luke has been slowly but deliberately for nine chapters leading us to the climax of this moment in Luke 9, 18 through 22 about who Jesus Christ is. Go back with me. Chapter one, the angel declared who Jesus was, the son of the most high. And Zechariah said he was the prophet of the most high. In chapter two, the angel said he's Christ the Lord. Simeon, the righteous Jew, said he's the Lord's Christ. And Anna said he's the redemption of Israel. And even in Jesus, at age 12, when he ran away from his parents, he's in the temple, they're looking all over for him. And they finally find him and they say, what, where have you been? And he says to them, why are you surprised? Why are you shocked? I have been about my father's business. Chapter 3, John the Baptist says, there he is, the lamb of the world that has come to take away the sins of the world. The Holy, we have the testimony of the Holy Spirit and of the Father says, you are my beloved son. Chapter 4 is the testimony of Satan himself. He says, since you are the son of God. And then we have the testimony of the demons. I know you are the holy one. And then in chapter 5, we have Peter that says, depart from me. For I'm a sinful man, O Lord. And then we have chapter 7. The religious leaders are together. And after Jesus' grace to forgive the sinful sexual sinner, the woman in that text, they say, who is this that forgives sins? Luke's bringing that question up. Chapter 8, there's another demon's testimony. Jesus, the Son of the Most High. And then the disciples say, who is this that even the winds and the water obey him? And then chapter 9, we saw that even Herod himself said, who is this man? Luke is making sure that his readers, if they get nothing else, will never mistake the identity of Jesus Christ. And yet the crowds that day who saw with their own eyes and heard with their own ears the things that he did, they did not answer the question correctly. 
And in doing so, today is the same way. Many times, people create the Jesus they want in their own minds, not the Jesus of the Bible. Read with me, Luke 9, 18 through 22. Now it happened that as he was praying alone, the disciples were with him. And he asked them, who did the crowd say that I am? And they answered, John the Baptist, but others say Elijah and others that one of the prophets of old have risen. Then he said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, the Christ of God. And he strictly charged and commanded them to tell this to no one, saying, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and then on the third day be raised. It's always amazing when I read that text that the crowds of the day, the people of the day had enough faith to believe that Jesus was someone who had risen from the dead and yet they didn't believe what he said about himself. Amazing. So, very easy outline this morning. The first question comes straight from the text. Who do the crowds say that I am? Now, the context is this here. Notice the text says, now it happened. That tells us there's a transition from doing other things. And we find Jesus once again alone in the book of Luke praying. Certainly the disciples are close by. But here's where we are in our timeline. We are two and a half years into the public ministry of Jesus. We are about eight months or so until his crucifixion. And the account of this text in Matthew 16 tells us that they were in Caesarea Philippi. So they're away from the crowds. They're up by Mount Hermon, about 9,000 feet. They've pulled away and they are with Jesus. As he asks, in some ways, this loaded question, who do the crowds say that I am? It's exam time for his disciples. It's, it's, the, it's the final exam, not the final exam, but it's getting close, right? After all this time with you two and a half years, who do the crowds say that I am? Now, chronologically, we need to understand that this happens right after the feeding of the 5,000. Chad spoke on that last week. Actually, probably up to 20,000 of men, women, and children. And so the Gospel of John reports that the multitudes, after Jesus fed the 5,000, do you remember what they did? The crowds, the masses, the multitudes, they said, let's crown him as king today. And Jesus is like, no, 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 no. It is not time for that. And so he pulls his men away and he asks this question, who do the masses say that I am? Who do the crowds say that I am? Who does the general population, what's the rumor mill out there? What's social media saying? What's Twitter saying? Facebook, what's on the mainstream media? Who do the masses say that I am? The disciples answered honestly. They said, some say you're John the Baptist. Interesting. John the Baptist's head was put on a plate before Herod. Others say he was Elijah, risen from the dead, or one of the other prophets. I think Matthew says Jeremiah's a possibility. 
So the masses don't answer correctly, but here's what they knew. They knew that Jesus had to be supernatural because all the things they had seen and heard could be not be done by a natural man. And so they some way go to heaven, they grab some of the old saints of old, and old John the Baptist, a new saint of old, and they bring him back to life and say, gotta be one of those cats. Because this guy ain't normal. They honestly say really foolish things in light of all that Jesus has said about himself and proved. But you know, folks, this is par for the course. A guy named Julius Wellhausen in 1911, he was a biblical, a German biblical scholar. He was one of the first to introduce what if you've been to seminary, you know this word, higher criticism. Higher criticism is a sect of liberal theology that continues to contradict and started then contradict the actual authors who wrote the text because they made this conclusion that the Bible was the text written by humans. For example, reading 1 Peter yesterday with Joel, Peter says, I am Peter, the apostle writing this book. It's in the first few verses. And they would come in and say, no, not really. So liberal theology says really dumb things about Jesus. Then you have the cults, Jehovah Witnesses. You know, they believe that the Bible is God's word. They believe in morality. They believe in Jesus' virgin birth, but they deny the deity of Christ. They deny what Jesus says about himself, that he is God in the flesh. Mormonism, they claim to be Christians, I remember working with the Cincinnati Bengals. There was a, a Mormon guy on the team, and he came to all our Christian Bible studies. It was, it was, uh, it was, di- it was difficult. It was a little eye-opening when I told him, no, he's really not a Christian. <laughs> and this is why. They, too, deny the de- deity and humanity of Christ. I'm glad he was a, a, a kicker, because... I could take kickers. And then you have the Jesus Seminar a few years ago. These are a group of liberal scholars, and they got together and they voted on which saying of Jesus were authentic. How about that? They began, though, at a bad place by assuming that the Gospels were a myth, and from there it was just purely subjective in terms of what they said about who Jesus was. Barna, in his research, says this, 92% of Americans believe that Jesus was a real person in history. Even 87% of millennials. I was like, I don't say a lot of good things about millennials, but that's pretty good, right? Only 56% say he was God. 25% say he was a religious leader like Muhammad or Buddha. 52% say Jesus was not Underline, not sinless, and yet 62% claim to have a relationship with him. Interesting. Everybody has an opinion on this question of who is Jesus. Some of our most famous people in the world have their opinions as well. 
Hitler said specifically, described Jesus as a fighter for the world. Gandhi described him as a sacrifice for the good of others. Einstein compared Jesus to Theusus, the mythical king of Athens, and other similar heroes like that. And Gorbachev described Jesus as the first socialist. One writer said, these men gladly believe in Jesus if there's evidence that his opinions are identical to theirs. And they're not the only ones. There are many Christians that put Jesus into their own categories instead of letting Jesus dictate ours. Add to this our postmodern world that views spiritual truth in the terms of each person's experience of it. There's a saying going around today that says, I have my feelings. Well, if it's true for you, then it certainly is true. And neither is right or wrong. Even if they contradict one another, they can both be true according to this current view of truth because spiritual truth is determined by personal experience, not by objective, verifiable means. Even there's a difference, even in doctrine of different denominations, this question gets answered wrongly. And when this question gets answered wrongly, the most important question, are you saved? Are you born again? Is also answered wrongly. Some believe they are born again via the waters of baptism. Let me say to you, just to make things clear, that is a lie from the pit of hell. You being dunked underwater, and there's a large denomination, several of them, in Middle Tennessee and around the country, that say because you're dunked in the water, that's when salvation happens. Absolutely a lie. That dunking in the water is an external representation of the internal work of the grace of God that's been done in you, where you have placed your trust in Christ to pay the penalty for your sins. It's not true. Some say you come to know this Jesus at the time of confirmation. Well, no. Babies don't get saved. Now, that's a whole nother discussion in terms of babies' eternity. We'll set that aside for the day. But your little baby, as pretty as it is, does not get saved. At two and a half, you know they are born sinners. <laughs> no one teaches them to lie, cheat, steal, and physically abuse their siblings. <laughs> right? Some think you're born again each time you attend Mass. No, you're born again once and for all. And if you're truly born again, you are saved to eternity. Despite yourself, the promise is I will never leave you and never forsake you. The gospel is good news for sinners. Once in a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ, you are eternally secure. You're either in, you're out. It's a one-time deal. Who Jesus is 
has one correct answer and many incorrect or partially correct answers. It's just not a matter of personal opinion or personal preference. It is a matter of God's word as or truth as revealed in God's word. So here's the reality of it. This question, simple question, who is Jesus Christ, is a question that divides. It divides families. It divides neighborhoods. It divides communities. And I'm not talking about being a snarky, mean Christian. I'm talking about just answer the question. No one comes to the Father but through Jesus Christ, and you are bringing division. I also think when asking that question, look, it, it's not complex. It's right there in text after text after text from Genesis to Revelation. Now, you may not believe who it is, but it's there. This is what he says about himself from the beginning of time. Let us make man in our own image. Us, Jesus was there. So why is it that people just can't read the Bible and come to that conclusion of who the Bible says Jesus is? That's a, that's a legitimate question, is it not? Why not? You might not like my answer, so I'm just going to read the Bible to answer it. I don't mind if you're mad at me, but I'd rather you be mad at God than me, if I'm humanly honest. John 12, 34 through 40. We have heard, it says, from the law, that the Christ remains forever. How can you say that the Son of Man be, must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? So Jesus said to them, the light is among you. Who's the light in this Bible verse? Jesus. When in doubt, answer Jesus, okay? <laughs> Jesus says, I'm the light. The light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light that you may become sons and daughters of light. The unbelief, it says, of the people when Jesus has said them things, said these things, he departed and hid himself from them. Though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him. So that the words spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Lord, who has believed what we, he heard from us and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore, they cannot believe. For again, Isaiah said, he has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn. Jesus had done so much to show them who he was. The text is telling us they had seen so much that they even though would not believe and now they could not believe. Jesus had turned the light out. Done. It's called God's judgment to an unbelieving world. There is a point, and I don't know when that point happens with a person, but there is a point that they cannot believe because they would not believe. Verse 40 says, God hardened their hearts. 
Verse 42, he gives us, he gives us more insight about their unbelief. It says, nevertheless, many even of the authorities believed in him, intellectual consent, but for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it so that they would not be put out of the synagogue for they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. They loved the approval of man more than the approval of God. They loved to be affirmed by the false religious system they were in. They wanted to be accepted by the people in their communities and families. Who is Jesus is easy to know, but many today will not confess his lordship because it will remove them or put them in odds with the community they're in and the status that that community brings them. When someone knows the truth and will not believe the truth, the next question we ask is why? And many times that's why. Because their friends and their peers and their communities they live in will say, what is wrong with you? It's right there in the text. Second question, who do you say that I am? Jesus now turns to the disciples and he asks them, this is exam time. Crowds say one thing, I get it. Now, who do you say that I am? And Peter in some ways steps forward and he speaks for all the disciples at once. And he says, you are the Christ of God. And here we see that what was predicted back in Christ's infancy is now actually becoming perception in some ways, reality some ways in the demise of the disciples. In Mark's account in 829, it says, you are the Christ. In Matthew's account in Matthew 16, it says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And in this passage, Jesus tells Peter that it was the father who revealed this truth to him. That to be able to see who Jesus is really and for one to be able to place their trust in him for the forgiveness of their sins alone, by faith alone, for salvation alone, is an act of divine revelation. Now, As we pause, that's why we say over and over, it is God's kindness that led me to repentance. It is his mercy that brought me to him. You or me or anyone else that knows Jesus do not come to Jesus because we're smarter, wiser, more spiritually attuned. No, we come by the mercy of God who takes away our blindness and softens our hard heart. It is divine revelation. So that's why in some ways you and I can rejoice in the midst of very tragic circumstances. We have been graced by God. Look, there's only one right answer. This question is not answered by an essay with multiple opinions. <laughs> Jesus didn't say to Peter, hey, Peter, I was like, man, that's a great answer. You know, in our little, everybody gets a trophy world. That's a good job, Peter, good answer. Anybody else got some other thoughts they want to add to it? He didn't look over at Judas and said, Judas, what do you think about me? 
Jesus is not whatever you want him to be. How you feel about Jesus does not change who he is. The crowds thought Jesus was a great preacher, a great messenger. But Dr. Daryl Bach actually says Jesus is the message. Peter's confession is a turning point in Luke. Theologically, it's the most important statement made in the book of Luke at this moment, up until this point, because it was the first statement made about Jesus is the Messiah, the anointed one, that Jesus is God. And it's, if you notice, it's in total opposition to the crowd. The crowd say, man, it's Elijah, John the Baptist, Jeremiah, rose from the dead, some cat from heaven, one of the old cats came back. Peter's, no, 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 no. This is him. Peter's also saying, therefore, Jesus, you are not John the Baptist. You are so much more. Jesus, you are not Elijah. You are so much more. You are not just another prophet. You are the prophet. You are not who the masses say you are. And in some ways, as we focus this year on Outward with the Mission, that's the goal of our evangelism. Our goal is not to influence a dead, earthly, fleshly culture. Our job in some ways, and again, not mean and not snarky and, and not in a non-kind way, but our goal is to confront a non-believing world with who Jesus Christ is and let the chips fall where they may. It is that message that goes out that God then, with divine revelation, brings people to himself. Notice with me, I thought it was interesting. Peter says, you are the Christ of God. Meaning, this is the one that God chose. This is the one that God anointed. This is the one that God set apart. In Luke 2.26, it says, This one would not see death until he had seen the Lord's Christ. Again, the Spirit of God and John the Baptist, or God the Father, said, This is my beloved Son. Luke 23.35, the religious leaders were mocking Jesus. And they said to him, He saved others, let him save himself. If he really is the Christ of God, the chosen one. Acts 3.18 says, What God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets that was his Christ would suffer. So I pause there and I ask you, do you think it's important to God the Father who we say Jesus is? what we think about Jesus, what we say about Jesus, how we live for Jesus, how we lift Jesus up, as Chad said last week. Oh yeah, this is his son. Yet even though, as Peter gave the perfect and correct answer, time would prove that this brash disciple Understood his correct confession. I kept thinking of an example this week. So I came up with this. Like I understand E equals MC squared. <laughs> you know, I can quote 
E, because E, and I can't quote it actually, <laughs> E equals MC squared. I know it has something to do with Einstein's mass energy equation. I know it's sort of the foundation of atomic energy and power, but that's it. I just gave you all I had on E equals MC squared. Here's what we know. Peter, Peter knew it intellectually, but he didn't know it internally. It hadn't become his. We know this because a few months later, under pressure from an old woman who asked Peter if he was a follower of Christ. Jesus had just been arrested and Peter said to her, I don't know the man with a curse word in there for emphasis. Sobering. Humbling. It's mind-boggling. In some ways, it's like me and you. We can give the great right answer with our lips, but there hasn't been enough grace and time and truth for us to grow and mature in such a way that it becomes a part of us. And that's where Peter was. I'm so encouraged, though, that we know that Peter got it right. He got it right intellectually first. I know that is the Son of God, but he got it right spiritually. We, we know that because 30-plus years later, Peter was asked to return disavow, deny one question. Who is Jesus Christ? Peter answered that question correctly through the courts of Rome. He is the living son of God, made flesh to die, to pay the penalty for man's sins. And because he would not change his answer, they said, we're going to crucify you just like we're going to crucify him. And Peter says, I'm not worthy of that death. Kill me, yes, but hang me upside down. And they did. If you and I have come to know Christ, know this also. God will never reveal more truth to you and I than we're willing to obey. You know he withholds his light we obey, he gives more light. We obey, he gives more light. We obey, he gives more light. If we stay where we are and we do what we do, even if we know Christ, we're not moving forward in maturity. No, I'm going to keep pressing right here, right here. As, he, as you do obey, though, he reveals more and more of himself through his word his spirit, and his people. Here's how John Newton, the writer of Amazing Grace, puts it. The nearer you are brought to him, the more lively sense you will have of your continual need of him, and thereby your admiration of his power, love, and compassion will increase likewise from year to year. Us older folks know that. Do we not, older folks? Lastly, Jesus says to his disciples, obliterate your expectations of who I am. Obliterate, destroy them. 
So here's what happens. Jesus responds immediately with, don't tell anyone. (laughs) Don't tell anyone what you just found out, that I am the Messiah, the living Son of God, that I am the anointed one because we're not ready. We're not ready, and here's why he gives them this difficult news. We're not ready to go viral yet. We're not ready to go public with the greatest news ever. And he says, here's why. Four verbs. I must suffer. I must be rejected. I must be killed, and I must be raised from the dead. Then the mission is on like Donkey Kong, but not until then. The truth of the matter is this, that Peter's confession Peter's confession, there wasn't a category in Peter's mind when he gave his confession of what needed to happen first. Matthew's account shows us this more clearly. Peter tells Jesus actually this, as Jesus talked about his death, Peter says to Jesus, never, Lord, this shall never happen to you, speaking of his death. And we remember Peter in the garden took the guard's sword and cut his ear off. The disciples, they cannot at this moment conceive of a crucified Messiah. Why? Messiah's win. Messiah's reign. Messiah's rule. They were thinking of the here and now. You know where the seeds of the prosperity gospel comes from? This. Thinking of the here and now. What Peter says is true, but it's not the whole truth. Jesus does bless Peter for speaking this truth, but there are expectations that must be destroyed. Triumph and reign without a cross is not, is not, was the picture or expectation of the disciples, and it must be destroyed. The Jews, in some ways, had this expectation that Jesus would lead them to take over Rome, that he'd be a political figure that would raise an army to recapture the glory days of David and Solomon and establish a worldwide empire. They they had this expectation that he'd be a political messiah who would put a chicken in every pot and a donkey in every stable. That's why we don't trust politics as a Christian. Yes, Jesus would eventually lead a worldwide empire, but that would be at his second coming. But for now, he must first die a brutal death to pay the penalty for man's sin. His first coming was about dealing fundamentally with man's most intense problem, and that is sin expressing itself in I'll run my own life. Disciples did not get it at this time. The strongest proof to this. Remember when Jesus was finally crucified? Where were the disciples? Hiding? Fearful of their own life? Look, here's what the disciples weren't doing. They weren't going, all right, Jesus is dead. It's Friday, Sunday's coming. No, they weren't doing that. They were in despair. They were crushed. They didn't get it even until then. 
Peter and disciples were correct, but they still needed time. This is encouragement for us to come to a deeper understanding of who Jesus was and what he meant for their lives. One of the most beautiful things about those who are saved is we can grow to deeper and deeper and deeper levels of intimacy and knowledge with who Jesus is. This question of who is Jesus Christ never gets old. Yes, it is incredibly beautiful and encouraging to be a Christian at that place, but that's the starting place, not the finishing place. We say here at Fellowship Bible Church, it is a long obedience in the same direction. And answering that question day in and day out never gets old. <sighs> Yesterday, as Joel and I read 1 Peter, I thought this is 30 years, 30 years later, after Peter did not get it. This is what Peter writes. <clears throat> Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at, the, you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. You think Peter matured spiritually over a 30-year period? Oh, yeah. C.S. Lewis puts it another way. He says, the terrible thing, the almost impossible thing, is to hand over your whole self, all your wishes and precautions to Christ. But it is far easier than what we are trying to do instead. For what we are trying to do is to remain what we call ourselves. Scary and hard, turn it all over the Christ, chase after him hard, or to remain yourself. Here's the deal. Jesus never, ever calls or even insinuates that we remain ourselves. Never. Matter of fact, and I'm peeking into next week's text, verse 23. Verse 23. Chad, are you teaching next week? You better do a good job, all right? <laughs> Chad's going to blow this away. Jesus says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. That's the call. Take a minute this morning to ask yourself, so what?